Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen. And we'll set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning. You know, working with leaders whose efforts directly contribute to a sustainable future is a dedicated part of my company's business, the Nebo Company's business. And I've had the pleasure of working with my guest today, Chris Wood, and his senior team firsthand. And I know from that experience how productive, focused, and inspiring they really are over there at Trout Unlimited, uh, one of our conservation powerhouses. Despite lean times, Trout Unlimited, also called TU, has exceeded its fundraising goals and it continues to build support for its results-focused work. Today we're going to discover the vision and the mindset of President and CEO Chris Wood, whom many consider to be one of the most effective conservationist leaders today. The approach that Chris takes with his team really powers TU and its outcomes. Um, It's such a mission-driven organization. Good morning, Chris, and welcome to the show. Good morning, Kate. It's a pleasure to be here. Chris, you've pointed out to me that conservation is a uniquely American ideal, and you've said it's affirmative, optimistic, and forward-looking in nature. I hadn't really thought about that before you told me that, so say more. Well, it's true. It's, um, you know, it, it is one of the, um, in the whole concept of protecting land and water um, for future generations is, is, a, is almost a made-in-America uh, concept. Some of our, our great early uh, conservation leaders like Aldo Leopold and John Muir and um, Gifford Pinchot, um, Theodore Roosevelt, um, helped to define this notion that we should set aside um, some of our natural resource base um, for the use and benefit of, of future generations. And um, when you think about it, there's there's probably no more optimistic or affirmative outlook, um, there's nothing that signifies more belief in the future than the idea that we're going to um, uh, you know, steward uh, natural resources and then pass them on intact to future generations. Um, and so that's why I always talk about it as sort of a, a not only uniquely American, but uh, extraordinarily optimistic, uh, deeply affirmative and um, you know, it's a, it's it's essentially a, 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 an understanding and a firm belief that we're going to be passing on um, a better way of life to people who we know will be coming. I love it, and I I, I also, uh, as, as you're saying that, it really occurs to me that 
what a gift it is to see what's right in front of our eyes and protect it and preserve it and make sure that it continues to exist. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of stewardship that, uh, generation to generation can contribute to and pass along. Um, and it seems so important right now. But tell me, how did you get involved with conservation, Chris? Well, my, my story is, is a, is an odd one and it's somewhat funny. I, I have always been an angler. I've always enjoyed fishing. And I went to, I had the, uh, Kate and I both went to school in Vermont, uh, in Middlebury, Vermont, which is, uh, rife with wonderful rivers and waterways that I spent a lot of time when I probably should have been in class fishing. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, like all good, uh, liberal arts majors upon graduation, I was, uh, bartending and coaching high school football. And, um, a, a friend said, uh, you know, Woody, you ought to come out to Alaska. Um, and visit me. He was also this is Mick Kelly, by the way, Kate, mm-hmm. um, yeah. who uh, he was out there also bartending at the time, putting his liberal <laughs> arts education to good use as well. And um, uh, I said, sure, let's do that. And so I went out there, and um, Mick lent me his his VW Rabbit, and I drove it down to a place called the Anchor River, which is a river that um, drains into the ocean, and or drains into the salt, and. Um, you know, I, I camped out there the first night. I got there at dark. I, I camped well above what I thought the water line was uh, for the tide. And I woke up around 3 in the morning with the tide in my tent and Mick's rabbit. Mick, to this day, Mick has not heard this story, so we cannot let him hear this. <laughs> Mick's rabbit was unfortunately in front of the tent. Um, oh, no. So uh, I, I didn't get out on the water the next morning uh, because I had to dry out mixed uh, vehicle as well as um, all my gear. But when I, I started up the Anchor River and I, was, I had my fly rod in hand and I had, these, uh, I had these rubber, these sweet new rubber waders. And I, waders are what fishermen use to keep from getting wet when they're wading in the water. <laughs> Just for those of you who don't fish. And, mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, anyway, I started seeing all these these enormous fish uh, li- dying and uh, lying on the side of the bank, and they were dying or they were dead, and they were you know profoundly deformed. They had big humps on their back. They had hook jaws. The skin was sloughing off their bodies, and I I I thought, you know, I can't believe this. I'm I get to go to Alaska once in my life, and um, I, I I've come to a river where there must have been some sort of industrial accident or a train derailed and spilled acid into the river to cause such deformity in these fish. I mm. truly thought that those fish, which had, you know, they were salmon that had spawned out, um, you know, had been subject to some sort of horrible accident. And I walked a little further upstream and there was a guy standing in the middle of the river fishing. And I, I watched him for a while and he watched me watching him and he finally looked at me and said, what? <laughs> what are you looking at? And I said, aren't you afraid about being in the water? And he said, why? And I said, have you seen these fish? There's something wrong with them. And he uh, looked at me and he said, hey, bud, those are salmon. That's part of their life cycle. And, you know, I knew he didn't know what he was talking about, so I said, nodded my head. And I walked back to Mick's car. I drove to the Anchorage Public Library, took a book out on salmon, <laughs> and discovered, lo and behold, these fish do, in fact, return to their natal streams that they were born in. Um, after living in the ocean for four or five years, they spawn and then they die and their bodies uh, provide nutrients that keep those systems intact. And I thought, holy cow, what a, what a extraordinary, um, what an extraordinarily cool thing. Um, and I found out that these fish were in peril 
in the lower 48 states, even though they're doing quite well in Alaska by and large. And I decided that I wanted to uh, spend the rest of my life helping to save the salmon. And that's how I got into the field. That's really amazing. That's an amazing, fateful kind of story, Chris. I think that's what we're all hoping for, that our tents will flood with water and our mission in life will become clear. <laughs> the trip well, to the may, library. It may be that people are a little more focused than I was upon graduating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm, I'm quite fortuitous that it worked out the way it did. Well, it's a, it's a fantastic story, and it was a life-changing event. Um, thank you so much for sharing it. You know, I want to tell our listeners a little bit more about your background. I know you um, came to TU in 2001 after serving as the Senior Policy and Communications Advisor to U.S. Forest Service Chief Mike Dombeck during the Clinton administration. Is that right? That's right. right. Okay. The, forest, the Forest Service is uh, one of our... Uh, one of those agencies that we that manage this conservation legacy we spoke of earlier, they manage 193 million acres of land um, in the United States and um, are the result of uh, uh, one of the people I mentioned earlier, um, Gifford Pinchot, was the first chief of the Forest Service, and he and President Theodore Roosevelt um, believed that the uh, vast swaths of public forests that were largely being clear-cut and raised to the ground um, you know, in, by private timber operations, should be protected and managed um, in perpetuity. And uh, that began the creation of the Forest Service. And I had the good pleasure of working for uh, one of the people who I think was probably one of the best chiefs that agencies ever had, Mike Dombeck. Fantastic. And then, then in 2001, you joined TU, and I understand that you have worked on everything from um, cleaning up abandoned mines with companies like Tiffany & Company to protecting iconic landscapes such as the Wyoming Range and Idaho's backcountry roadless areas. And tell us, uh, tell us a little bit more about what you've done in your, your career. Well, it's, it's less what I've done than what the people I work with at, at Trout Unlimited do on a daily basis. What, what I think makes uh, TU such a, a neat organization is that um, our, our people are actively engaged in working to uh, protect um, the highest quality habitats and then for fish, and then uh, reconnect those uh, down to lower elevation areas through restoration. And that affords us a chance to get involved in doing things like uh, protecting roadless areas on national forests or, as you mentioned, uh, the Wyoming Range uh, in Wyoming from oil and gas development. Um, It also allows us to uh, work with uh, western states to try to build some flexibility into western water law so we can keep rivers wet during dry periods of the year, um, remove obsolete and unneeded dams, all of which help to pass fish. And then some of the most gratifying work that, that we do as an organization is led by our volunteers, where we have literally hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, watershed restoration projects that are occurring in local communities around the country. And they can range from uh, something small scale, like uh, doing a stream cleanup, picking up trash along streams, all the way to doing uh, literally landscape-scale restoration in in, uh, watersheds like the West Branch of the Susquehanna in Pennsylvania where they're cleaning up abandoned mine drainage from um, historic coal mining. Mm -hmm. That's quite a a broad reach. And, um, you know, I'm aware that your mission is one of – I love your mission because it's so simple and straightforward and memorable. And I think it's conserving, protecting, and restoring North America's cold water fisheries and their watersheds. Is that it? 
That's it. Good for you. You 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 get a free membership, Kate. <laughs> no, I think I've already signed up, Kate. So, <laughs> and I know and I know that 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 statement, you know, really helps us understand conserving, protecting, and restoring North America's cold water fisheries and their watersheds, and that really does encapsulate the work that you and Tu are doing. So we're going to take a break, Chris, and when we come back in just a couple minutes, I'm really looking forward to having you talk with us a bit about how Tu is faring in. The these tough economic times, and I know that there are people out there who'd love to learn from some of the things you've been doing. So we'll be right back. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Thank you for being with us this morning. I'm talking with conservation leader Chris Wood, CEO and president of Trout Unlimited. And Chris, right before the break, we were just starting to, to get into talking about TU. But I want to back up for a minute and go back to our first question. We were talking about fly fishermen as optimists. And I know it's been a tough time for environmentalists in recent years. And I'm wondering how... TU has been faring, and I'm also curious to know, what do optimists do in times like this? Well, it's a, it's a great question. There's many ways to answer it. Um, uh, it has been a difficult time um, for many nonprofits, not just in the conservation space, but I think it's been particularly challenging for, for those of us who do um, environmental work because typically... You know, the environment isn't necessarily going to be a, a top-tier issue um, in a bad economy um, when you have high unemployment and, and um, you know, you're spending, you know, in, in our case, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, fighting multiple wars overseas. So conservation, you know, probably for the past, oh, 
10 years or more hasn't been as high a priority as many of us would like. And I think that has uh, tended to um, reinforce, um, you know, uh, negative attitudes uh, in terms of how many environmentalists or conservationists approach their work when, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, there's, a, there's a, one of the great uh, conservation leaders in American history was a man by the name of Aldo Leopold who wrote a wonderful book uh, which should be required reading f- uh, for everyone called A Sand County Almanac. And, and in that, he talked about one of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. And quite often, I mean, it makes sense when you think about it, we, we see, you know, steep declines uh, in terms of water quality, the loss of open space, um, numbers of species that are threatened or endangered or, or on the rise worldwide. And it can lead to a, a you know, a, a creeping cynicism or a pessimism. Um, about doing conservation work because you're mm-hmm. living alone in a world of wounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, what separates TU is that, you know, where we, we look at that same data set, um, that, uh, that loss of water quality, the loss of open space, the decline of species, and we see it as a tremendous opportunity to help recover um, uh, fish and wildlife, to protect the best remaining habitats that persist, to make sure that landscapes are connected so that we're re- rebuilding the natural resiliency of our of the land and water that we all depend on as a country. And and it's a, you know, I think it probably goes along with being a fly fisher. Um, you know, this is a group of people, any angler really, but fly fishers in particular. This is a, a this is a group of people who will willingly, joyfully stand um, in, in freezing water, near freezing water, for hours mm-hmm. at a time, mm-hmm. uh, casting a combination of fur, feathers, and wire at river ghosts. And, <laughs> and there's not one of us who knows, absolutely knows, uh, as a moral fact, that that last cast of the day, that will be the cast that we catch the largest fish of our lives. <laughs> so I think we take that kind of optimistic perspective and outlook um, into the the work of of conserving, protecting, and and restoring uh, uh, trout and salmon um, in the habitats they depend on. Just really believing and ca- keeping on casting. It sounds like um, <laughs> keep casting. If you're not catching <laughs> any fish, keep casting. Keep casting. There you go. You know, I want to read the the full quote um, uh, that, that you you were mentioning, Aldo Leopold's um, quote. And I don't know if you have it there. I have it here. No, please. Okay. One of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Much of the damage inflicted on land is quite invisible to laymen. An ecologist must either harden his shell and make believe that the consequences of science are none of his business. Or he must be the doctor who sees the marks of death in a community that believes itself well and does not want to be told otherwise. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. And I, I, I like what you said about to you that you're not afraid to look at the data and, you know, maybe afraid, I'm not sure if afraid is the right word, but that you're willing to look at the facts and operate from there in the spirit of opportunity. That's what I think I heard you say. That's right. It's just... Um you know, I, I again, I think it goes back to um, honoring the the uh, the core 
uh, roots and principles of conservation in this country. The idea that, you know, together we can uh, leave a world that's that's healthier, that's more diverse, and that's more productive than the one that that we inherited. And and in fact, that it's our obligation to do so. And um, every, there's not a member of Trout Unlimited uh, who doesn't subscribe to that that belief. And you know, actually, I think it's more universal than just Trout Unlimited. I think in their hearts of hearts, most Americans feel that way. We're a we're an we're an optimistic, forward-looking nation. And I think people respond well to that that kind of a call to to help get engaged to um, to pass on a richer land and water legacy um, is the kind of calling that I think people can rally around. And in our case, they they do, and, and hopefully they'll continue to do so. You know, Chris, tell us more about that. Tell us more about Trout Unlimited. Is Trout Unlimited really just about trout, or is it much bigger than that? Which is what it sounds like to me. Well, it's 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 great. I mean, we we benefit by having a very focused, on one hand, and narrow mission, um, as you which you you properly uh, stated early on. You know, the mission of Trout Unlimited is to conserve, protect, and restore trout and salmon fisheries and the watersheds that they depend on. It just so happens, however, that uh, because uh, trout in particular are you know, an exceptional indicator of land health. Um, you know, when you think about it, everything we do on the landscape is eventually reflected in the quality of our waters. Uh, you know, the, the old adage, gravity works cheap and it never takes a day off. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that, that fact gives us great latitude and, and enables us to work on a, on a host of issues um, that implicate water quality, that implicate... Um, you know, water quantity issues, um, uh, everything from energy development to climate change to, um, you know, z- local zoning and protecting uh, watersheds and uh, high elevation uh, tributaries that might be the sources of some of the coldest, cleanest water um, in a river system um, and, and might be, you know, highly desired for development purposes. Um, you know, so are the the focus of our mission allows us to, um, you know, not to gadfly issues, to stay uh, true to what uh, our members um, really care about. But but the fact is, because trout are such a uh, exceptional indicator, it also allows us to, you know, uh, work on a fairly broad portfolio of issues that are of, um, you know, often national concern. Mm-hmm. And can you give us just a, a f- uh, examples of the issues? kinds of issues you work on? Sure, sure. One of our top uh, priorities right now as an organization is um, is protecting a, a very special place in southwest Alaska called Bristol Bay. Um, it, this, is, this, this one area of Alaska provides 40% of all of the wild salmon that are consumed in the United States today. Uh, every year, on an annual basis, 40 million fish return to this area to spawn and wow. it has been uh, it has been working that way for millennia it's a system that's perfectly balanced um, it provides over 600 million dollars annually in recreational and uh, commercial fishing um, economic opportunity over 12,000 jobs on an annual basis and that system which is so perfectly balanced right now is being imperiled by 
um, two mining companies that want to build what would be North America's largest open pit gold mine right in the headwaters of this of, of, of where two of the eight rivers that feed into Bristol Bay start and um, they want to store the uh, tailings um, that would be created by this huge open pit mine behind a three mile uh, long dam that would probably be 700 feet high in earthen dam in a highly seismically active area and um, people will recall that Anchorage Alaska was devastated by uh, a 9.2 Richter uh, earthquake uh, back in the 60s, the early 60s. It's, it's exactly the wrong place to put a mine like this. And um, that is probably our top conservation priority, uh, stopping that mine. Mm-hmm. But this, again, just to show you the duality of our organization, um, at the same time, we are working uh, hand-in-glove with other mining companies around the western United States to help clean up old abandoned uh, uh, gold and silver mines and copper mines that have been out there for 100 years, um, knowing that their owners are, are long gone, uh, but those mines continue to leach uh, at toxins into the water and, uh, to such an extent that the Environmental Protection Agency has estimated that 40% of all western headwater streams are affected by abandoned mines. And we're working very closely with uh, a multi, you know, uh, uh, several mining companies to try to, um, you know, get out there and uh, clean up those, those, those watersheds, clean up those abandoned mines, um, which has significant water quality benefits for downstream communities, as well as obvious fisheries benefits. really about trout and it's you know you've you've really made clear that the trout is an indicator of the health of a larger system and certainly that impacts all of us and, and our health um the health of our nation actually and i know you're involved in um some east coast issues as well you want to just give us one more example before we take a break sure a great um a great issue would be the the, the explosion of something called marcellus shale um this is a, a gas formation that lies thousands of feet um, beneath the earth, and um, it, particularly in Pennsylvania, New York, West Virginia, Maryland, and um, that's what they call the so-called Marcellus Shale region. And it has the ability to power the eastern seaboard for 30 years. Um, the, 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 the trick in the, the area that we've been um, playing in is figuring out how to develop that gas resource without... Um, you know, ruining the quality of life in those local communities and impairing the water quality of the streams and the river systems uh, that are also in those areas. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a topic near and dear to my heart. I grew up in um, northeastern Pennsylvania in a little town called Montrose, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, right in the heart, right very close to Dimmick, Pennsylvania, where they had some major issues related to fracking. So, Absolutely. In fact, it, uh, it's been a high-profile case of how not to develop uh, Marcellus gas. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you guys are there. I'm glad you're working on this. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Chris, I want to hear your vision for the future. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you are looking for both an inside and insightful look at what you're not seeing in media coverage of today's legal, business, and policy battles, tune in to In the Court of Public Opinion with host Jim Haggerty. What happens in the public arena affects us all. Whether you're following the latest high-profile court case, corporate crisis, or are just interested in government and policy, be sure to tune in every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. The witnesses are ready and the jury seated. So join us for our next session in the Court of Public Opinion. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Good morning, and if you're listening, please do email us or give us a call. We'd love to hear from you, and I'd love to be able to direct your questions to my guest, Chris Wood, the CEO and president of Trout Unlimited. And um, Chris, before we move to the topic of vision, which is, of course, being uh, the host of a show called Visionary Leader, I'm very eager to get to. <laughs> but before we go there, I'd love to just um, linger a moment longer on the success of Trout Unlimited as an organization and my own experience with your your staff is, uh, I've, I've rarely met a group of people as focused, as strategic, actually, and as committed to creating outcomes through their work. And I, I've you know, really noticed not just one or two people who carry those qualities, but actually virtually every person I've, I've met at TU. And I'm wondering if you would, would mind just telling us a little bit more about, um, why it is that in such a down economy when so many organizations are having difficult Kate, I just, can you hear me, Kate? Yeah, I can. Okay, yeah, you just cut out on me. I heard down economy and then lost you. Okay, well, I was just saying, in the down economy where so many other organizations have been struggling and even backsliding in terms of their fundraising and their ability to really corral resources toward their mission, I know that you all have exceeded your goals, and I'd love to know, what's your secret? Well, it's a good question, and I'm, I, I think you, you probably answered the question um, in describing the people who work here. We have a just a, from the senior staff that lead the organization on down. Um, you know, I, I think because of the unique um, the unique aspect of our mission that we're you know we're, we have a bunch of people who work here who love the outdoors, who are deeply committed, who have chosen to work here. And I promise you could make a lot more money elsewhere. Um, that, that enables us to get a, to really direct and harness that passion in a very productive way. Um, we, we have uh, weathered uh, the, the economic storms fairly well um, so far. I think that's in part because um, 
uh, not only of our staff, of the, the good people that work here, but the, the, the you know our our donors. I think are 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 very impressed by the fact that we can get. We believe that we can get things done by working in local communities, um, engaging opinion leaders in those communities um, to talk about what the future is that that they want to see. Whether it's a you know creating um, easements to protect um, you know, cold water fisheries on private land in a place like North Carolina, or working uh, at a much larger scale with the state of Idaho and the United States Forest Service to craft a solution to protecting 9 million acres of, of uh, backcountry areas in, in Idaho. Um, there's a, a certain can-do spirit that pervades TU, and I think our donors um, uh, are exceptionally loyal to us because of that. Um, in, in addition, we, we have you know, several different lines of business, if you will. Uh, we're not simply involved in protecting land. As I mentioned earlier, we do uh, a tremendous amount of, of watershed restoration, of, of basically repairing lands that have been damaged, repairing waterways, and, and helping to make them healthy, um, which has not only uh, benefits for, for fisheries, but has significant benefits for downstream communities in terms of reducing water filtration costs or protecting areas from flooding and so on. So we've... Um, we, we, we value very much and we take very seriously the partnership that we have with many of these natural resource agencies at the state level and the federal level who are extraordinarily important partners with us um, uh, in terms of doing that really vital restoration work. And um, even in the down economy, uh, there's still a need to uh, replace culverts that um, get blown out during floods. And... Um, uh, there's still a need to uh, make sure that irrigation uh, systems are working to benefit landowners and to uh, ensure uh, trout survival. And um, we've we've been very lucky uh, to to have uh, you know these relationships, and we take advantage of them and help those agencies achieve their missions. And it's a very important part of our business. Chris, I know that you have espoused and embraced a philosophy and vision that you call collaborative stewardship. What does this really mean? Is that what you're describing? Yeah, it is. Um, it's interesting. This has sort of been an evolution for me. When I worked at the, the U.S. Forest Service, I was uh, very much involved with my boss in, in something called the Roadless Area Conservation Rule. And we essentially took a promulgated a regulation that protected 58 million acres of land. It's an extraordinarily um, important set of lands across the country that comprise, you know, about 3% of the American landscape. And we basically protected those areas from new road construction and from timber harvest and other forms of development that uh, could compromise their ecological values. We did that... Um, for a variety of reasons, I think it was absolutely the right thing to do. But we did it through a regulatory approach, and um, you know, in the intervening decade or so since since that rule was promulgated, I've I've uh, I've become uh, very conscious of the fact that the, that conservation, which is most local, is likely to be most durable. And so, TU has been a part of a whole variety of conservation initiatives. Um, that engage uh, communities of place, that engage 
a whole variety of communities of interest, including uh, you know development interests or commodity groups, um, as well as uh, you know other non-traditional allies, if you will. And that approach of sitting down and talking, having these values-based conversations about what people want, allows us to quickly sort of set aside political differences or or uh, you know otherwise get around um, the fact that we're often talking to historic um, antagonists and to, 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 you know, really sort of begin having these values-based conversations about what's what what people's vision is for different landscapes. So a great example of that is um, in the Klamath River, which is a river basin that strides, that straddles rather uh, Washington, I'm sorry, uh, California in Oregon. It's you know, probably one of the most complicated, controversial river basins in the western United States. Um, over a hundred years ago, dams were created um, by the Bureau of Reclamation, and, and landowners were promised federal water to irrigate crops in an area that otherwise wouldn't have water. Um, and then, um, you know, in, in the meantime, the, that same basin has has had um, several different fish species, including several salmon species that were listed as threatened or endangered and which required that water that had otherwise been promised to irrigators. So in just a, a brief history here, if that's okay, Kate. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in 2001, in response to the water needs of these imperiled species, the federal government shut off that water that had been supplied for 100 years to those irrigators and basically bankrupted a number of them. And then um, in 2002, um, you know, the politics changed, and they basically let all the irrigators take all the water that they were entitled to. And as a result, we had one of the largest fish kills uh, in the history of the United States in the Klamath River Basin. Tens of thousands of uh, endangered uh, salmon and steelhead uh, were, were basically left without enough water to survive, and they died. Um, and then that... that Further led to in 2005 the first closure of the commercial salmon fishery um, along the coast there. For the first time since the California Gold Rush, that fishery was shut down, and, and that was the history of conflict that um, basically had defined the series of relationships in that basin. And then we just you know we worked with a, a whole group of irrigators and commercial fishermen. Um, uh, energy companies to basically hammer out an agreement that uh, would provide a, a base amount of water to those landowners who had been there for you know 100 years, while also ensuring you know sustainable rates of water that'll protect the salmon. And in the process, we came to an accord with the, the hydropower company, which owned four of the dams, to remove those dams uh, over the next 20 years and then uh, restore 350 miles of salmon habitat that had been degraded and haven't seen salmon for 100 years. But with the removal of the dams, we're confident those fish will come back. And, and that's the kind of, um, that's the kind of uh, program or project that I think is maybe the best descriptor of what collaborative stewardship is about. It's about getting people together um, on the ground, um, you know, not, not allowing historic conflicts to define what's best for, for local communities and for the natural resources they depend on, and then sitting down and developing solutions. You know, it reminds me quite a bit of a, 
conversation I had on the show with uh, Deborah Fries at the Burkana Institute, and their premise is, if you even go to their mission, the answer to every problem is community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they, 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 you know, she talked at length about um, people working in community to create solutions um, based on this kind of collaborative approach that you're describing and I love to hear the example that you just gave us and I think that um, you know often we, we separate I think those of us who aren't as engaged day to day with the conservationist and environmental movements and efforts we tend to separate care of the earth with humanity and, and sort of the day-to-day living and I think in the story you just told us it's a story about the struggle um, to a- apply a natural resource in a way that's um, balanced across multiple needs and serves the needs of um, conservation as well as community and and farming and all of those things. So it's a it's a powerful example, Chris. And I'm, I'm glad that you I'm glad you illuminated that for us. Well, I mean, there's uh, there's no constituency in this country for erosion. You know, there's no there's no lobby group that's out there advocating for degradation of water quality. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's really you know taking care of um, taking care of the earth is is in everyone's self interest and too often with many of these environmental issues um, it's this zero sum game of um, you know jobs versus the environment or even worse for us is when people say it's fish versus the environment and mm-hmm. so you know what we try to do whether it's in that Klamath example I just gave you or we did. We were a part of a coalition that did the exact same thing on the Penobscot River in Maine um, in hopes that we can recover imperiled Atlantic salmon and other migratory fish. Um, you know, we were able to negotiate an agreement to remove some dams and recover habitat that will lead to 1,100 miles of river miles um, that had historically been blocked now being available for fish. And, and, and the way we are able to get to these agreements is by starting the conversation off with what can we do um, to help maintain or even improve your quality of life, whatever that local community is or whatever that vested interest is that is, is uh, seemingly interested in preserving the status quo? And you know, once they're, they feel comfortable talking about that, you can then begin to look at solutions that maybe change the status quo but either, either maintain or benefit uh, the quality of life that those people have become accustomed to. And if mm-hmm. you start looking at conservation as a game of finding solutions, of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of doing what um, Theodore Roosevelt once called uh, solving, uh, uh, applying common sense to, to common problems for the common good, um, then you can, you can begin to build that constituency for conservation. So suddenly we're, we're, we are ranking in the top tier of national issues. We're not then consider right. a secondary or a tertiary issue. Right. Thank you for, the, for for describing that for us. I think that's very clear. You know, we're going to take a break. Um, before we do, I just want to say that what you're describing reminds me of the philosophy of Lynn Twist, um, who talks about her work with her, her learning from Buckminster Fuller and the idea of a you and me world, not a you or me kind of world. And I think it's that kind of thinking that's at the back of what you just said. So we'll take a break. We'll be right back.
up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Tired of the government squandering your tax dollars on bailouts and overpaid bureaucrats? On Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Mike Beitler and his guests explain why big government regulations are the problem and innovative businesses and free markets are the solution. Listen to Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1 866 472 5790. That's 1. 1- 866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. I'm talking to Chris Wood, President and CEO of Trout Unlimited, also known as TU. And I really encourage you to learn more about Trout Unlimited. Whether you fish or you don't, um, just go to their website, tu.org, and you can learn an enormous amount about what they're doing on the issues that Chris has been describing this morning. You can also uh, look, listen to the State of TU address online, and we'll be including a link to that um, in our next e-newsletter, Visionary Leader. So, Chris, we just have a few minutes left here today, but we have plenty of time for hearing your vision of the future. And I would love to just invite you to paint a picture for us and show us a future that we can get excited about. Well, thanks, Kate. I mean, I think we've been talking about it in large part. Um, maybe we began talking about it with uh, that that notion of collaborative stewardship that we were just uh, visiting on. But, you know, m- my mission and my organization's mission are, are, are essentially one and the same. Um, very specifically that uh, within a generation, within a few decades, that uh, we'll be able to recover uh, North America's uh, wild uh, trout and salmon populations so that our children can fish for them once again in their home waters. Um, it's a very uh, it's a very basic sounding vision, um, but it's one that's uh, you know it's it's audacious in its breadth when you consider that uh, there are at, at, at least uh, 200 stocks of salmon that have already become extinct uh, in this country. In that essentially every native uh, trout uh, species in this country has been proposed for listing under the Endangered Species Act at one time or another. Hmm. So your vision 
is that these that say it again one more time it's that within um, a generation uh, that we would be able to recover wild and native uh, populations of trout and salmon to robust and healthy enough levels so that our children can fish for them in their home waters. And it's a multi-layered it. vision in that, um, as, as I'm, I'm sure your listeners are aware, we have, a, uh, in, in uh, I mean, some have described it as an epidemic in this country of, uh, uh, in terms of um, an issue with children who are not getting out of doors enough. And you've got all sorts of issues associated with obesity. You've got um, more single-parent homes um, than ever before. You've got more dual-working parents than ever before. And the result is that kids often don't have as much time as, as we had when we were growing up to just get outside and enjoy the outdoors. And... Um, there's a double whammy that affects us when that happens. Um, number one, I think it leads to uh, kids who are often unhealthier. You know, the average American kid today watches more than four hours of television per day, um, and that's all time that, you know, could be spent outdoors, um, either playing baseball or learning how to fish or spending time on a creek, whatever it is. The other problem, the longer-term problem, and this may be somewhat self-serving on my part, is that... Um, as the number of uh, anglers, de- hunters and anglers declines, which it has been doing, um, and as these kids are less informed about the natural world around them, uh, that constituency for conservation, that future constituency for conservation, begins to dry up. And if we don't have that support base there, advocating for protecting, reconnecting, and restoring um, you know, the North American landscape, um, that's going to be a real problem um, as we deal with issues associated with climate change and energy development and population growth and so on. So part of your vision is to have that infrastructure set up, to have those networks established, to have that um, those mechanisms in place so that we have the right conversation happening at all times. That's exactly right. And, and it's, uh, you know, one of the wonderful things that my organization does um, our grassroots leaders, and we have, uh, you know, 400 chapters around the country. Each of these chapters, on average, donates about 2,000 hours of community service per year. And a big, big chunk of that is spent teaching kids about, not just about fishing, but about the outdoors and about conservation, and um, it yields huge dividends. I can really see it, Chris. I see I see the rivers, and I see the young people, the kids, the boys and the girls, out there with adults teaching them how to fish and actually having success and, of course, course, catching and releasing and continuing the cycle of of appreciating and enjoying um, being out of doors. And I I, I see also what you're describing about a, a set of systems that values this and really makes sure that we're always... Um, Thinking about talking about and acting to to create a sustainable um, a sustainable way, approach, a conservationist approach forward, you know. So that, I mean, in my mind, when I'm picturing your vision, I'm really seeing the rivers and I'm seeing young people in them, and um, it's, a, it's a great That's vision. Absolutely, idea. Yeah, it is. And you know what else? I want to connect it back to your first story that you told us here about you. You know, it's actually your vision is a is a an event you've already lived in your life. You know, I think of you and your early post-college years, you know, there in Alaska going out to 
fish and getting swamped in your tent and going out and studying you know the the fisher on the creek and then going to the library learning about the fish you know and then dedicating yourself to well, this future yeah. you know in a very real way i never thought about this until now but um that vision that I described is wholly informed by that experience that I had as a, as a young adult. Um, I, I, mm-hmm. I once, I, I'm now uh, the father of boys, and uh, they love to, you know, fish and camp and hike. And we we don't own a television set. You know, we're we're real luddites. But mm-hmm. um, I asked my father once, Dad, how come we never went camping as a family? And he looked at me and he said, Chris, for me, staying at a Motel Six is camping. Yeah. <laughs> and uh you know I when I was ex- when I had the opportunity to really experience nature first at, in Vermont when we were students there together um mm-hmm. but then you know in particular in my professional career um you know you you cannot you cannot experience um the outdoor world uh without being uh you know immersed in uh in the absolute imperative of taking care of it um, and whether your motivations for doing that are are, are religious in terms of uh, taking care of God's creation or self-serving because we need the land and water to sustain us is really beside the point. Um, everyone should take an active uh, role, whether you fish or not, in uh, supporting those who are helping to protect and reconnect and restore uh, the lands that we all depend on. You know, that's a, a great statement, and we're, you know, getting close to the end of our time together, Chris, and I I want to just um, thank you, first of all, for taking the time to join me this morning and for sharing so much of your vision and philosophy and also um, letting our listeners learn about what TU is doing. And is there something we could do to support you and your organization? Can you just quickly give us some how to, you know, how to get involved? Absolutely. The, the best way is to go to... Um www.tu.org, T-U as in Trout Unlimited, and uh, you can become a member there. You can um, you can learn how to support some of our, our place-based conservation measures. Um, if you're interested in in, in uh, we, we do we do a series of trips every year through something called the Cold Water Conservation Fund, and these are lifetime trips that we put on. Uh, ten times a year or so, and we get people outside, we get them close to the, the the waters, and they catch a lot of big fish, and they get to see some of the conservation work firsthand that we're engaged in. But thank you for asking that question, Kate. Yeah, and I would I just want to encourage you, like I, to go there and learn. It's just a fantastic site. It's an amazing organization, and they're really working for all of us, I feel. Um, and for those of you who listened last week to Richard Leiter, maybe you might recognize in the voice of uh, my friend and, and uh, colleague Chris Wood, um, a leader who is on purpose. We were talking, Chris, last week about um, the power of purpose in our lives, and you certainly are that leader. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Kate. It's been a pleasure. Have a great day. Bye-bye. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com. 
for more tips on bringing your own vision to life. 